Some of the, the greatest warriors of the B.C. era were the Spartans. The men of Sparta trained mentally and physically since childhood in preparation to become what they called a hoplite warrior. They lived and they breathed war and battle. One of the things that made them successful warriors when they battled was their organization and their unity within their battle tactics. Hoplites were armed with a round shield and a spear and an iron short sword. In battle, they would use a formation called the phalanx, which was rows of hoplites stood next to each other so that their shields overlapped one another. During a frontal attack, this wall of shields would provide significant protection to all the warriors behind it. However, there was a flaw to this system because if there was one weak link, if one person did not stand their ground with their shield, if one person was out of sync with the others, it made the entire formation vulnerable. They had to have unity in order to succeed and to win the battle. And this is true for the church as well. And for a local church to succeed and have victory over the domain of darkness, of sin and wickedness, there must be unity. One maverick in a church can cause great harm. One point of hatred towards other church members, one lie, one slander, one malice can cause great harm to the church. All of those sins of hatred that we saw Last week in verses 7 through 9, those sins that, that create disunity have the, have the potential within a church for disaster. And we talked last week about the imagery of, of shedding off clothing, putting off our sins. That's the imagery that, that Paul invokes. It's like taking off layer by layer by layer. Paul uses the exact same imagery in this text, only in reverse. Put on. In other words, clothe yourself. Some translations um, even use that, that term because that's the imagery that Paul is invoking. Clothe yourselves with these things. Clothe yourselves with, with this and there will be unity in your church. And for the Colossian church, much of the disunity uh, that they were having was centered on race relations. And we've already seen how the Jews were trying to, to legalistically impose Old Testament theocratic laws upon these, these new Gentile converts, laws that Christ fulfilled and that were not binding upon them. And we read Paul's proclamation, verse 11, the, the verse that precedes what we're studying today. Here is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. He's addressing unity there. We are all one in Christ. Jesus is in all of us who are Christians. That's where our identity lies, not within our ethnicity. Put on then, because of that truth, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Those three terms that, that Paul uses to, to describe the Christians at the church are significant. The reason that they are significant is because those three terms are normative terms in the Old Testament that describe the nation of Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. They were called to be holy. They were uniquely loved 
by God. And Paul takes these terms that were used over and over and over in the Old Testament to describe Israel, and he applies them to this multi-ethnic church. All Christians are chosen by God, called to be holy, specially loved by Him. So for some of these legalistic Jews, this would be a very scandalous statement. No, <laughs> those terms, that's, that's for us. That's for, for us Jews. That's, that's not for them. And Paul says, yes, all of you who are believers, those that, that, that are Christians are chosen, holy, beloved. The, God's people, those that He is saving, is not an ethnic nation. It's a people of faith. He's calling them then to unity despite their racial differences. We are one in Christ, Paul says. So as ones who are chosen and holy and beloved, and I'm just going to, from this point on, I'm going to sort of summarize those three words by saying the word saint. Um, Paul uses that word saint to kind of summarize Christians uh, several times. And so when I say saint, at least for the purposes of this morning, I mean chosen, holy, and beloved people. Um, so as saints of God, as chosen, holy, and beloved people, put on this. And what follows is, is what I'll, I'll call this morning the attire of saints. This is the clothes that you put on that will promote unity in the church. So back to verse 12. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Saints, these are the things that we are to clothe ourselves with. This is what people should see when they look at our lives and our actions and our interactions with other people. Particularly how we interact with each other as Christians. How Christians interact with one another. Let people look at our church and see these attributes of the, the members of our church. Compassionate hearts. This is concern about someone else's bad circumstances. This is sort of putting yourself in their shoes, of the shoes of the one who's suffering and struggling and understanding their struggle. It's what Jesus displays in, in Luke chapter 7 when he, he encounters a widow whose, whose son had just died, leaving her all alone in the world. She was struggling. She was suffering. And we are told this in Luke 7, And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her. And He said to her, Don't, Do not weep. And He would raise her son from the dead. Compassion is to, to look at those who are suffering and put aside any differences that you might have and to be there for them. We clothe ourselves in this and it produces unity. Kindness. This is related to compassion. And we all understand kindness. We know it when we see it. It's that grace in one's life that sort of mellows out harshness. And there's a natural tendency in the human sinful condition towards harshness in our words and in our actions, particularly when someone is unkind to us. It's so easy to be then unkind to them, to repay evil with evil. George Bernard Shaw once wrote a, a letter to, to Churchill 
that said, Enclosed are two tickets to the opening night of my first play. Bring a friend if you have one. And he responded, Churchill responded, said, Dear Mr. Shaw, unfortunately, I'll be unable to attend the opening night of your play due to a prior engagement. Please send me tickets for the second night, if you have one. Unkindness responded to with unkindness. Friends, that's what we must fight against. Let's be a people whose first reaction is kindness. Put on kindness. Be kind to each other. Clothe yourself in it. So that that's what people see. Humility. If there were more humility in churches, unity would not be a problem. It's pride that stands up to oppose someone when it's not worth the opposition. Rid yourself of self-exaltation. Uh, the word translated humility here um, was a word that Greeks actually never wanted applied to them. Uh, every word that's close to the English word humility had an element in the Greek of either meanness or feebleness or weakness. But the gospel sort of took that word of contempt and weakness and made it really one of the most important Christian virtues. Christians strive for humility because Christ humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. What was once unthinkable to strive for for the Greek-speaking person is now a virtue that we clothe ourselves with. And when we do, when we are humble, it helps produce unity. Meekness, or uh, in some translations it could be translated gentleness. This is not being overly impressed with yourself. It's related to humility. And so a way that this might play out it would be the willingness to, to suffer injury instead of inflicting it. So if your choice is to harm someone in our church or you be harmed, meekness, gentleness says, I'm going to take the harm and protect my brother or sister in Christ. Don't think of yourself as more important than others, Paul would say to the Philippian church. That's meekness. Clothe yourself in it. It's the attire of saints. Patience. I'll define this by saying it's opposite, which would be quick to anger. Being long-suffering with one another. Be patient with another. In the 1700s, um, someone behaved very rudely to James Boswell. Uh, James Boswell wrote the biography of his friend Samuel Johnson, uh, the author and poet. He went to Johnson and spoke of this serious distress of this man who was rude to him. And Johnson laughed and, and he said this. He said, Consider, sir, how insignificant this will appear 12 months hence. Do you quickly get angry over things that in one year's time, in two years' time, in five years' time, you won't even remember? Be patient. Be long-suffering with each other. Consider how God was long-suffering with you. Consider how... From all the way back to Israel, God was, was Israel was long-suffering with Israel and their sin, and He is long-suffering with you. Do you see the, the heavenly attire? Do you clothe yourself in the attire of saints? When people look at you, do they think compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, Patience. Is that what they, they think? Is that what they see when they look at you? Is that your clothing as a saint of God? When we adorn ourselves this way, 
then some truly amazing things begin to happen. And you see the actions of saints. Things that would normally never happen begin to happen. Things that are antithetical to the, to the culture we live in, but, but for Christians is, should be normative. Verse 13. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So this is what it looks like to live as a saint dressed in this heavenly attire of, of compassionate hearts and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You begin to bear with one another. People you would perhaps otherwise hate. People that you would otherwise not be able to stand. And you begin to tolerate them. You begin to be with them, even love them. When you are reviled, you, you bless them. And even more important, given the qualification that, that Paul gives here, he says that, that you forgive each other. Paul wants members of the church at Colossae to forgive those that have wronged them. And notice the qualifier. He says, in the same way that you have been forgiven by God, when you didn't deserve it, forgive others. Jesus actually had a lot to say about this uh, in his ministry. Mark 11 Jesus speaking here. says, And whatever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. So in that verse, you have someone who has gone to worship. They're trying to interact with God in a way that is pure and right. And, and as they're doing so, they, they have this thought. They remember, I, I'm not being forgiving to someone. I'm, I'm, I'm holding what they did against me and in, in, in such a way against them in such a way that, that would condemn them or reject them and it reveals a heart that doesn't really understand just how indebted to God we are and how much we have sinned against him that Christ forgave us and he went great lengths to do so and the solution is told to us by Jesus is for this person to forgive them like right then and there determine in their heart to have a disposition of a forgiveness towards the person that has harmed them. Now, that doesn't mean that you will always be reconciled. Reconciliation with someone requires repentance on the part of the other person. But in your heart, you must have a disposition of forgiveness. Open to forgiveness. A heart full of forgiveness. Forgiveness that, that will hopefully come to full fruition and reconciliation upon their repentance to you. You cannot be a Christian and not be a forgiving person. Why? Because you have been forgiven much, Paul says. There's a parable that Jesus told um, about this specifically. A parable that I'd like to, to just read to you because I think it's really helpful um, to kind of illustrate and, and kind of give us an image of this, a, an image that Jesus himself gave us. This is from Matthew chapter 18. And to kind of set up the parable of, of what why Jesus taught this. Verse 21, Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but, but 77 times. 70 times seven. Therefore, here's the parable, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, Pay what you owe. And so this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And so, uh, in essence, a, a king forgives a debtor who owes him like a million, million dollars. A ridiculous amount of money, just off the charts number for this time. Then he goes and, and strangles a friend who owes him ten bucks. That's the comparison between how much they owe. In other words, being forgiven has zero transforming effect on this servant. He's as selfish as he ever was. And the parable continues. Then his master summoned him and he said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him from the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. James would say it like this, for judgment without mercy to one who has been shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God's forgiveness of us must lead to the forgiveness of others. That's the point of of the parable. It must. You can't be a Christian and be an unforgiving person. We must do our part in the forgiveness. That is to have a heart full of forgiveness. As I said, you can't control their repentance. That's their side of the the forgiveness transaction. But you can control your heart and your attitude. And this is what Jesus meant, I think, when he said, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. They're still our enemies when we do that. They have not asked for any forgiveness. They don't think they need any that make our life miserable. We are to bless them. And that blessing means that, that our part of the inward forgiveness has happened. We must renounce revenge and trust our cause to God and then return good for evil. That's our part of the forgiveness. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably at all. So you must, as far as it goes to you and your part, you must commit yourself to being open to to forgiveness. So hear me when I say this. If someone comes to you to seek reconciliation, they have sinned against you, they have harmed you in some way, they have let you down, and they come to you to genuinely seek forgiveness. And your response to them is, they don't deserve to be forgiven. Then you do not understand God's grace to you. Because if you understood God's grace to you, you would gladly 
joyfully offer forgiveness. If you understood God's grace, then you would understand that you do not deserve to be forgiven of your sin. You deserve nothing but the wrath of God. You deserve nothing but hell. But if you are born again, that means God has forgiven you anyways. So how could you not forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive? God has forgiven you far more than you will ever have to forgive anyone else. Every sin that you commit is a sin against a holy and a perfect God with perfect standard and perfect justice. So when He forgives you, it is truly a remarkable act of grace. The Lord, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive, Paul says. Yet there is a garment that without it, that's impossible. It's impossible to bear each other, bear with each other, and to forgive each other without this garment. This is the most important garment of saints. This is like the crown. This is the fundamental, uh, fundamental to, to everything that we have talked about so far. If you don't have this, if you don't put this on, then, then none of this is possible. Verse 14, Paul says, Above all these Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The single greatest producer of unity in the church is love. Love is what enables us to turn the cheek. Love is what the world sees and, and makes them wonder at what's different about these Christians. Love, specifically the love of Christ, to love the way in which Christ loved. That's what enables us to bear with one another and to forgive each other despite how they have harmed us. It's the foundation of a compassionate heart and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. More important than any of those, clothe yourselves in love. The rest of those things fall in place when you do. Those are the natural overflow of love. If you love each other. You can't be harsh when you're full of love for others. You can't withhold forgiveness if you put on love. It binds it all together. It binds us together in perfect harmony. When you have the love of Jesus in you, it enables you to do the unthinkable. Larry Nasser pleaded guilty in court for seven counts of sexual abuse to minors. Girls, some of them as young as 12 years old, were abused by him. Over time, over 250 young girls have come forward to accuse him of sexually abusing them. Years and years and years of sexually abusing girls. This is a wicked, wicked man. The first survivor to come forward to accuse him. Uh, her name was Rachel Den Hollander. And after the, the verdict, and the verdict was for 60 years for owning child pornography, and added upon that 60 years is 175 years in prison for the abuse accounts of, of all these girls. So in essence, it's a life sentence for him in prison. So after that verdict came down upon him, Den Hollander had the opportunity to speak directly to her abuser. And part of her speech, she said this. She's, she's talking to the man 
that sexually abused her as well as countless other girls. And she said this. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God Himself loving so sacrificially that He gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin He did not commit. By His grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds could erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done and all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says it be- says the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you to throw and be thrown into a lake than for you to even harm or cause one child to stumble and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Only knowing and living out the love of Jesus would allow a sexual abuse victim to offer forgiveness to her abuser. She knows of God's forgiveness in her own life, and she knows that that He will forgive even someone as wicked as Larry Nasser if he repents and places his faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the most important garment. Love each other. Not just your friends, not just your family members, but love indiscriminately with pure, genuine love. More than anything else, unity requires that we be a people of love. Friends, if a sexual abuse victim can display love to her abuser, then we can love each other. Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Father, if there's someone here who for the first time is experiencing the the crushing weight of their sin, that they deserve nothing but hell, God, would you open their hearts and open their minds to see the grace that you have provided in Jesus Christ. That they may repent and believe in the gospel. Father, help us as, as Christians to leave our gathering this morning clothed in the attire of saints, centered on having the same kind of love that Jesus has displayed to us. Father, we know 
that, that the cross of Jesus is the most profound expression of love. Father, help us look to the cross and then go and have that same kind of love. In Christ's name, amen.